You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Evening, you are listening to Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.04, and I'm your host, Mark Herring. Tonight, we have a very interesting show lined up for everyone. It is the second day of Ramadan, so we have a show specialized around this Muslim holiday. But before that, we have two stories from our correspondents, well, from me and from our Assistant Public Affairs Director, Chris Chaffee. The first story we're doing is about a beer bike. And so, Chaffee, can you please take it away? I don't consider myself a lucky person, and I find giveaways and sweepstakes pretty futile endeavors. My friend Kyle Jones, though, he's a little different. His story starts in the pages of a local newspaper. There's just like a huge ad, and it had the big picture of the bike. And uh, as soon as I saw it, I like tore it out and like ran home and showed my roommate. We both got on the computer and like started entering in like as many times as we could. There's uh, multiple ways to to enter. Like you could have like written like a poem or something. Uh, you could have left a video, and one of them was to leave like a 60 second story by just calling in. And then uh, another like two weeks after that, I was just it was really late. I was bored, and so I just decided I would uh, call in and leave a voicemail. And so I just, like, I didn't have anything rehearsed, just off the cuff. I made up a story, and and then I forgot about it. My name is Kyle Jones. I'm from North Carolina. Here is my tale. A few years ago, I traveled down under to the awe-inspiring Australian outback. I set out on a mountain bike to traverse the harsh environment to get up close and personal with Mother Nature. I stopped at the billabong one day for a drink of water, but little did I know that a crocodile was lurking in the water just below the surface. I could sense him there, and I decided I would beat him to the chase. I dove in, wrapped my body around the beast, and he thrashed it around until he was too tired to continue, and I let him go. The local aborigines saw me do this, and their chief hosted a feast in my honor. It was kangaroo steaks and plenty of fat tire ale. I rode off the next day. Right, so you waited a few weeks, and then what happened? I mean, I was in my kitchen. I was, you know, working on some noodles, and uh, I was <laughs> I got the, the call. I was worried it was some, some telemarketer or some, some crap I didn't want to hear about, and... Uh, and then the person called and was in a really strict, like, sort of, like, professional tone. And I was like, oh, God, I'm about to hang up. And they're like, hi, is this Kyle from North Carolina? And I said, uh, yeah, um, I work with a new Belgian brewing company. Uh, do you know why I'm calling? I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> and so, yeah, she explained to me, like, how I would get the prize and all that stuff. And I was just, uh, I was in shock. It was funny. I've never really won anything. Do you feel like you have a gift? <laughs> I do feel a little empowered. Like uh, I went into a shop the other day with my uh, my brother-in-law, and he signed up to win something. I was like, "Oh well, I'll do it too." And then you know, if I win, I'll give it to you. But I'm pretty sure <laughs> I just felt like I was extra lucky. So now, are you gonna like buy a lot of lottery tickets? Uh, no, I've I've done that. I've been down that road. <laughs> The Triangle boasts a very diverse population, 
with various ethnic identities. And with that diversity in culture and national origin comes a colorful palette for restaurateurs, foodies, and people going out to eat. The South Asian population has grown extensively in the past two decades, and the craving for curry dishes and anything baked in a tandoor oven has become extremely popular. Basmati rice, um, cooked with uh, you know very high seasoning, um, and then we have a tenderized chicken, cooked with homemade spices, and then put together with rice. But the catch to many of these restaurants is the cost. Aisha Rashid never expected to get in the restaurant business. Her Pakistani family catered for friends, but affairs in the kitchen never got too serious. Then her father got sick. Turning to the kitchen for additional income, the Rashid family, headed by Aisha, it and eat. It just gives more flavor to it. Basically. And her mother Sultana started off selling samosas in a convenience store by NC State's campus. Let me just briefly describe really quick. Um, we started off with something really small, like selling. The samosas, 50 cents, you know, the triangle samosas. Yeah. We started off with that first, but then we decided to get, you know, something small where we can get started, you know. So, and then we found that place inside Gopax Bazaar. Um, we were doing really good, but there were some ups and downs. Like, we had a lot of parking problem. Um, it was inside a convenience store. The place was really tight, you know, tight. So we decided to get something, you know, a little bit bigger. Where you know it can be a nice dining, big kitchen. You know. Yeah. So, what's different about this setup? Uh, the good thing is that we made it out. We made the plan. You know, we did all the drawing and everything. So, and it's for our convenience. We picked up right where we wanted things, and that's the best thing. Okay. And just can you explain a little bit, uh, like the, the types of items on the menu? A lot of restaurants like this, they say they're Indian restaurants, but you say you're an Indian Pakistani restaurant. Uh, well, we have a lot of varieties um, in chicken and in vegetables. There's so many dishes, and then we will be increasing our menu later on. And we also added tandoor dishes as well. So we'll be serving tandoor within one to two weeks. This is a clay oven. Tandoor is clay oven. So we'll be having a lot of dishes relating to that. Um, like I said, I mean, we have a lot of room now, so we can cook a lot. You know, and the space is big, and it's very convenient for us. Okay, great. And um, can we just kind of go through what are some uh, characteristic flavors and dishes that come with Indian Pakistani cooking? Sure. Um, like our restaurant name is Aziz Biryani Corner. So biryanis, it's a rice dish. That's our specialty. We have vegetarian biryani, which is like seasoning rice with all vegetables cooked with spices, homemade spices. And we have um, chicken biryani with tenderized chicken meat in it, seasoning rice, homemade spices. And then we have goat meat as well. So goat biryani, which includes um, seasoning rice, you know, all homemade spices uh, from my mother's hand. <laughs> it's all homemade, no, like, you know, from outside. Um, those three are our popular dishes. Um, and then our biggest hits are butter chicken and chicken tikka masala. Chicken tikka masala is basically a creamy based sauce with bell peppers and onions served with plain basmati rice. Butter chicken, that's also boneless chicken pieces, you know, dipped into this uh, creamy based sauce, which is made out of tomatoes, onions, um, you know, chili powder, turmeric, and all other homemade spices. It gives a really good flavor. Also good for your sinuses, too. <laughs> There are a lot of bold flavors, but I think a lot of people, they get 
scared. Uh, they get scared away by Indian food sometimes because it's like, oh, it's too spicy. Well, but what are, what are the kind of like the misconceptions there? Um, well, it's the good thing about us is that we can control the uh, level of spices. You know, if someone says, okay, I want really mild, we can make it really mild. And we don't use very strong ingredients, you know, that, I mean, we, <laughs> we can control the spices or anything. So that's com- completely on our hand. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. And um, besides, like, the masalas and the biryani and different curries, what are other dishes from this region of the world that the average American wouldn't be so familiar with? Like chicken 65 and kebabs, sea kebabs. There's chicken sea kebabs, chopli kebabs. They're also made out of chicken. Um, that's cooked in a clay oven, and the, I mean, the taste is awesome. You won't be able to mm, get you know this kind of taste anywhere else, guaranteed. But what's yeah? What's what's the advantage of the clay oven, and how, how does that work? Um, it's like uh, you know how you barbecued. You get a different taste. Like, clay oven has its own taste, but you can say much better than barbecue, though. <laughs> and then uh, we'll, we'll be also making breads, which are called naans, um, in the clay oven. You know, it's really good for if you're getting something like curry type or gravy type. You dip the bread in, and it gives awesome flavor. <laughs> okay, great. And um, what kind of demographic do you guys cater to? Um when you were located on Hillsborough Street, there were a lot of students, but now you're uh, kind of in a different part of the city. Um, so you've only been open for a few days, but uh, who are your like biggest customers? Mm, well, we do a lot of catering as well, like you know, wedding parties, um, small functions, or you know, we do a lot of catering on that. So just. A variety of people? Yeah, a variety of people. It's not like, you know, just uh, specific people. We get all different kind of races, you know, and they come and cater from us, and um, and they love it. Yeah, and uh, are you getting a lot of students from Centennial Campus? Yes, a lot of students. Yes, a lot of students. Even though you, you're you starting in the summer, I know the summer is kind of like a downtime for a lot of different restaurants, especially in the college area. Um, have you been taking a hit? Uh, well, we are kind of satisfied that because we're getting booked up with catering as well because summer and winter time is a you know a wedding season basically for, um, yes yeah so I mean we're good on that so you know we have a backup with caterings and uh, there's also a religious um, holiday coming up in August it's a 30 day one it's called Ramadan where you know everybody fasts all the Muslims they fast and everything so we are getting booked up for that too in advance. Okay. So for like uh, Eid festivals. Yes, mm-hmm. Eid festival is Ramadan, where you have to, you know, break your fast during dawn time. So they have to, you know, everybody gets together and then you know open fast together. So they all are doing catering from us. Okay, cool. And um, that's an interesting topic. You were talking about, uh, you know, how you have a variety of different customers, and um, I can imagine a lot of Indians and Pakistanis come here to eat. And there's a little bit of tension between those two countries, but how does food sort of bridge that gap? Well, um, the tension that you mentioned is basically basically like a political view. Yes. But, uh, you know, I mean, 
like the regular people, you know, the local people of India and local people of Pakistan, we are really good together. We go along very well. But all the stress they are having is just, the, you know, the political view. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are Indians. We, we are very, um, you know, in good relationship with them. They are like family to us. So it's nothing like, uh, it's like family. You know, when they come in, we don't say, oh, my God, you know, no. But they are like family. They're like our brothers and sisters. So <laughs> Exactly. There's a, a shared heritage. But um, how, what are the similarities? Well, you know, um, the culture is very same. Like their dressing and our dressing is pretty same. Food is very same. Um, the living style is pretty much, you know, very similar. Um, the languages are very similar. We look alike. <laughs> um, especially, I, can, I would say the culture and the food is very similar. That's one of the biggest things, yeah. So is cuisine a way to connect people? Yes, definitely, definitely, yes. Thank you very much, Aisha. Now we have a little segment with our resident poet, Selma Abdulhai, and she will do a few poems that she has written, and she will also talk about her Muslim faith. And so, Selma, take it away. Testing. 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 You are listening to Selma's Poetry Corner on I Am the Triangle. Okay, okay, I think we got it. I think, I think the microphone is on. Thank you, Selma. Oh, oh, okay. So, how do you write a poem? So, what I do is I'll, like, I take an analysis of my mind and myself. So, basically, I'll wake up from a dream one day, and I'll remember something, like a rainy night in the city. <laughs> For some reason, that just keeps happening in my dreams, although I'll, I'll like, be running away from some random evil thing in my dreams but that's just my dream but i'd always be kind of like an Are you suppressing city. anything yes i am <laughs> i have issues <laughs> <laughs> all right continue yes but basically i just come across like a rainy city and i just realize, dude that's where i am like i love the city and i love the rain and i just okay it's like art it, it is art okay. it's just like a little uh, like paint splattering on a paper and it comes out to become a masterpiece that's how it feels when I finally finish a poem. Okay, so would you now using that analogy, is it premeditated or is it something that, that comes to you through spontaneity and you put it down or you have to cultivate it? Like, I don't think the Mona Lisa would have been painted if someone just threw some paint on a paper was like, I think she's smiling. <laughs> in a way. I mean there there are a few artists out there that that can manage to do that. Yeah. But what about you? Personally? I, uh, I I come across a lot of poets who will they show me their way they have they'll, like they'll write out an outline of basically whatever they wanted to say in the poem and then from there they go and they make their metaphors and like basically a spoken word is uh, like it is poetry but it's not the exact same thing it's more like it's like heavily polluted with metaphors and kind of mind banging you <laughs> yeah. to put it lightly and so but what I do is basically. I just kind of sit down and I write something and I'm like, my head is like a random mess of insanity. So I like start writing something and then it just keeps going on from that and it keeps going on from that. I don't really like 
I don't stop to think about, oh, whether this, oh, will this work out here? And then I write down what I goes and I just flow on with it. And if it messes up the flow, I just go, I like rewind and I start flowing again and see if that works. And then, yeah, that's basically how it comes out to be. Okay, cool. Um, do you have any more poems in stock? Um, I have this one love poem, so uh, I hope you like it. It's not for you, Mark. Don't worry. Uh, I'm covered. Oh, whatever. <laughs> no, I'm okay. Sure. okay. <laughs> this poem is called Dear V. Your love is my drug. And I'm not talking about that Kesha song because I'm just straight up addicted. Like I would buy it by the kilo off the street. See, this love has gone way past bone deep. But let's back up a bit. See, your very taste is my love because you are so sweet like a serenade to my tongue, a seductive symphony in your scent. So unique, so intense, so bizarre, just the thought of it binds the beats closer in my heart. And all I ever wanted was for you to love me back because your hyped up energy is what kept me on track. You made me sane, you made me whole, you even stopped the headaches from knocking at my door. But now you're gone. You've up and left me. Cause he learned of my affair with Dr. Pepper and Diet Pepsi. Despair has filled me. My heart is sore and I still can't believe you called me a soda whore. But it's okay. Cause I still love you. And you should know that no soda is above you. So forgive me, V. And I'll stay true. Cause the best soda in the world is Voltage Mountain Dew. So you got a little caffeine problem. Addiction. Let's talk about it. What Were you drinking the Voltage Mountain Dew when you were... So I wrote that poem actually when I was in high school. And... I was, uh, I had a real problem. I would drink like five cans a day of Voltage Mountain Dew and I'm not fat, but I just have a caffeine addiction. Basically, our teacher told us, you have to make an an apostrophe. An apostrophe is an ongoing personification in a poem. So, like say you uh, personified your sandal and you said, sandal, the way you hug onto my foot. Just makes me feel so loved and protected. I mean, yeah. and it goes on throughout that whole thing. And uh, so, basically, I looked at my soda I was drinking. I was like, you know what? I, I think I love you. And so, <laughs> I just started writing about it. And it came out to be my Voltage Mountain Default. Well, I'm glad that you've experienced something like love. It's unfortunate <laughs> it's with an inanimate object. But perhaps... Don't hate. Perhaps he'll make it into the the natural king, you know, the the animal kingdom. To my, uh, to me, my Mountain Dew. To you, your Haterade. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. But there is one poem that I would like to share, and since I am a Muslim, I wear a scarf around my head, and so a hijab. I, a hijab, exactly. And so I wrote a poem on behalf of them and why we wear it. Okay, so. You're referring to Muslim women who wear the hijab, the yes. hijabis. Hijabis, yeah. yeah. The the slang term. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Um, so, this is it, and it's called oppression. Take it away. All Muslim women are oppressed, is what they told me. They think we're oppressed, that we have no choice. That every second we wish to take it off. That someone forced us to cover up. They think that beauty should be shown off. They think we're beneath and below our men. Because we haven't exploited our bodies to the cam. But why in hell should we demean ourselves for the pleasure of men who don't know our worth? You see, Islam is not oppression. Islam is fair. 
They don't want women to get raped and fall to despair. They want us to find husbands that'll love us and truly care instead of loving us for our looks and eventually having an affair. See, the restrictions we follow is so our pain can be spared. And it's really not that hard to simply cover your hair. And it's only a small cost that people will stare. But if heaven is a reward, then how can the cost even compare? You see, without a son, life would be something that I could not bear. The fact is, I need a slum like I need air. So tell me again how Islam is unfair. How will below men cause we cover our hair? How will get more respect for being less dressed? Ha! I think you're projecting. Maybe you're the one oppressed. So share your thoughts on that. You wear the hijab and you wear it proudly. There comes a moment in a young Muslim girl's life where she can choose to go down the road of wearing the hijab or not. And it's yeah. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand the process of coming to that. How old were you? I was 14 years old. And is that a common age among Muslim girls? Well, if we're going to get into technicals. Okay. A Muslim woman is technically supposed to wear a scarf and cover up and be modest at the time she reaches puberty. As in when she becomes a a woman Mm -hmm. to hide her beauty and so that men will look at her for who she is instead of what she looks like and as she goes to develop and everything. How it goes for me. I didn't wear a scarf when I became a woman. I came in uh, two years later and I decided to wear a scarf because I realized why I should. Like I'd been through a lot of stuff in my life and I was going through a lot of things and I had to realize firsthand the consequences and the really bad parts of not wearing a scarf and how you could be taken advantage of. And so I realized, oh, I am really messing up my own life here. And it's not like I'd, like I was just downward tumbling down a hill or whatever analogy. <laughs> but basically, I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, complete despair. I was pretty depressed. Oh, it was? Okay. Yeah, I was pretty depressed. But I mean, Like, it's not something I can recognize. Like, I guess at the time I was just like, I was like any other teenager. I'm like, oh my God, my life sucks. So now I have to do this and now I have to wear a scarf. What? I mean, I grew up here in America and I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and I didn't wear a scarf then. And I'd moved here to North Carolina and I was like, well, I'm not going to wear a scarf here. I'm like, what what do I look like to you? And then finally I had to learn the hard way. And I'm happy I learned the hard way because the way I think... I learned from experience, and I had the experience to show me, well, a lot of crap can happen to you if you don't, like, protect yourself, and that's what hijab literally means. It means protection. Now, I've been wearing it for five years. I've been wearing it for five years, and, I mean, it's become a part of me. I couldn't go out without it. Okay, wonderful. (laughs) And, um, while we're on the subject, maybe... Explaining the the appropriate times when when you wear it and not. Um, I think a lot of people they're not really aware of you know certain customs in Islam. Mm. Um, so you can wear your hijab when you're at home, or you can take it off when you're at home. Yep. Okay. You or, can. Okay. Go ahead. So how it goes is technically you cannot show like for a woman you're not supposed to show your hair to someone you can marry. As in, you can show your hair 
to your father, your brother, your uncles, your grandfathers, um, your husband. But to other men, it's uh, off limits. Basically, here, this is how it goes. If you want to see my hair, you got to marry me, fool. <laughs> that's permanent right there. And so, I mean, that's how it goes. We're just like, hey, you don't deserve to see my hair if you're not married to me. Who do you think you are, fool? <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Um, and um, so, Muslim women could take off their hijab when they get home. But if a man is in the house, that's not their uh, betrothed or their kin. They have to stick that thing back on. But for if you go out, you put it on. I mean, there are a lot of... I'm not like... I don't uh, look down upon those who don't wear the scarf. Or non-Muslims. Or anyone. Because that's their choice. Thank you very much, uh, Selma. And now we have an, our next segment features Selma again. And it's Selma and Chris. And they do a little segment talking about what Ramadan, the new holiday, or the holiday that's going on right now, what Ramadan is all about. So here it is. Long ago, there lived a man named Muhammad. He was a regular guy. He had a wife and kids and had a good job as a merchant and shepherd. He lived in Mecca, but he was unhappy with the people he lived with because their lives were sinful. He couldn't take it anymore. So he took a month's respite in a cave on the outskirts of the city. While he was there, an angel named Gabriel came to visit. He told Muhammad, Iqra, Bismiru khalaq, which basically translates to read, in the name of thy Lord and Creator. It was the first revelation of the Quran to Muhammad. The rest of the Quran was revealed to Muhammad in subsequent days. These days are what have become the month of Ramadan. My friend Anas al-Sabbagh describes how we observe this month in modern times. It's a holy month out of the calendar year in the Islamic calendar in which uh, Muslims fast for 30 consecutive days from sunrise to sunset. And basically the whole purpose of Ramadan is to achieve uh, closeness to God or piety. It's a time for repentance and fasting. Every morning before sunrise, Muslims wake up and have a small breakfast. Then they fast for the rest of the day. Ramadan is a time for both self-reflection as well as gratitude for the lives we have been given. It's a struggle in and out of itself. There's inner struggles in which, you know, you try not to sin. You know, it's not just about abstaining from eating and drinking. You also try to stay away from any bad things you might want to do, you know, any desires you might have. And also, outwardly, you try to stay away from stuff that which kind of displeases God. What happens when you break your fast? Usually, we break our fast either with a date, and if we don't have any dates, we drink a cup of water. Not by, you know, dating a girl, but a date as in something that you eat. It's like a fruit, you know, it's very nutritious. So we break our fast with that. And usually, um, we eat as a family. And also families, you know, tend to invite other families. Or sometimes, you know, us as a group, friends, you know, around NC State, we break our fast together. So that's Ramadan for dummies. Tune in next week for a day in the life of a fasting Muslim. For I am the Triangle, I'm Selma Abdulhai. Thank you very much, Selma. And now our final segment, we got a sh- short show for you tonight, is with a local imam. And he explains how Muslims pray five times a day. The month of Ramadan marks the most important month in Islam's calendar. But every day, five times to be exact, Muslims pray to profess their faith without exception. I talked to Sameh Asal, 
I work here as an imam at the Islamic Center of Raleigh. An imam means uh, a religious and a spiritual leader of the community. And he explained the customs and traditions of the ritual prayers. Uh, is it okay to uh, record while the adhan is being made? Yeah. You want to capture this? We do this call to prayer five times a day. There is a statement from Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that whatever hears the adhan from you, whether it is a man or a bird or a stone or anything around, will be your witness on the day of resurrection. And normally this adhan is raised on a minaret in the Muslim states where Muslims would hear the, the adhan and they would come to the, the mosque. When it comes to the prayer, Muslim prayer is the same during the whole year, Ramadan or before Ramadan or after Ramadan. Uh, we Muslims pray five times a day. This is the obligatory five daily prayers. And mostly it doesn't take uh, more than uh, uh, seven, ten minutes each. And uh, we do some acts during the prayer. First of all, for before the prayer, we do have make purification. Uh, purification through performing wudu. And wudu is to uh, wash the uncovered parts of the body. You rinse the mouth, you rinse the nose, and you wash the face, and then you uh, uh, wash the arms. Up, up until the elbow and then you wipe over the head and then you wash the feet and um, uh, then you, you come to the prayer first of all you make this gesture by raising your hands next to your ears or your shoulders and this is called the opening takbir takbir is to say Allahu Akbar Allah is great Allah is the greatest uh, you put the right hand on the left hand on, on the chest and then you recite Al-Fatiha recite Surah Al-Fatiha the opening chapter of the Quran Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmiddin you bow down bowing down you say you invoke you remember God you mention the name of God you say Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim uh, Glory be to my Lord the Magnificent and then we get to uh, Sujood prostration where we uh, invoke, we make invocations for God as well. Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, Glory be to my Lord, the Exalted, the Most High. We were told by the Prophet, peace be upon him, that this is the place where the servant of God is the closest to his Lord. So it's time for the person to pray more, to ask for whatever he needs, to ask for success, to ask for uh, the gains of this life he can ask while uh, performing sujood or the prostration and then by co doing this you have done one unit one rak'ah and then you stand up for the second unit or the second rak'ah you do the same if you have prayed for four units like like now like the known prayer you do that four times and then you have like uh, uh, 
the invocation before the end and then you have the greetings toward greetings uh, conclude the prayer these five daily prayers remind muslims to be faithful and prompts them to think about their submission to god which the word islam means from i in the triangle i am mark herring salam alaikum That was on the Triangle. I'm your host and public affairs director, Mark Herring. If you have any questions or concerns, or if you would like to share a compelling narrative or story with us, you can contact me at publicaffairs at wknc.org. This show was produced with the help of Chris Chaffee, Selma Abdulhai, and Nick Savage. Listen to the show in two weeks and check out our website in the meantime at wknc.org slash blog. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Have a nice evening.